Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy Zoden. I am joined by the one and only, the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one, international tennis hall of famer, as well as Johnny Levine, the two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. And we have got lots to get to on today's show. Did it turn midnight for Cinderella a little quicker than we thought? Our Fed fans freaked out, and the 20-somethings rule the desert. So you've got all that to look forward to today. Mats, let's start with you. Emma Raducanu in her first match since winning the U.S. Open in historic fashion, winning 10 matches en route to a U.S. Open victory at just the tender age of 18, comes to the desert for her next match after that U.S. Open win, draws Sosnovich in the first round for her, a lackluster display. Were you surprised by the lack of what Emiratikanu brought to the court compared to what we saw in New York? Yeah, guys, nice to be with you. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to be surprised. I, I am surprised, I think, um, when you are obviously only... Uh, 18 years old and you've won something big the pressure is on the pressure must probably that you put on yourself so I can also understand how you maybe show up uh, in your next match and you feel a little flat emotionally hoping to play great and then it's not there it's not the same as as it was at the U.S. Open Sasnovich is a very tricky player first of all to play again she keeps the ball in play she knows what she's doing with a lot of variety so it's a tough match in a way but uh, yeah I mean surprised but again, I mean, what kind of preparation did Emma Raducanu really have? She hasn't played a tournament since the U.S. Open um, and uh, the Indian Wells. I mean, we saw that there were uh, women and men losing left, right and center. Uh, and there was a lot of upsets. Uh, so I, it's not really surprising. But um, yeah, be interesting to see how, how she moves forward. I think she's a great player. Uh, winning one major doesn't mean you're automatically are a great player for sure. But she's got the talent and... Yeah, I guess the attitude is what we held so high during the U.S. Open. Uh, but um, I think that the disappointment she must have felt not feeling great, not feeling the same way she did in New York, that, that's, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to understand. So, Johnny, is there less pressure on a Layla Fernandez coming out of the U.S. Open? She had a real nice tournament, uh, won a couple matches, uh, got beat by Shelby Rogers in a third set tiebreak. Played very well. Played great doubles with Coco Goff. Was that possibly a good decision for her to play both the singles and the doubles coming off of the great result at the U.S. Open and thus actually performing, it seemed, in more relaxed fashion? She didn't seem like she was under as much pressure. And she looked just like she did in New York, to me, with what we saw from her in Indian Wells. Yeah, I think Layla Fernandez is a player that, you know, she's got more experience, believe it or not, obviously, than Emma Raducanu. Um, she's been on the tour longer. I think she's played a lot of these tournaments. She's used to the competition. Playing doubles is always a great thing, I think, for these young girls. It gives them more matches. It gets them some volley play, uh, which typically, they're you know, they don't come up to the net very much. So I think it always, always is going to help their volleys. Um, I think it's a way to relax a little bit. It takes some pressure off. And I, and I think that having not won the U.S. Open probably uh, was a less pressure situation for her. So she did perform well. She played well. You know, she had a tight match where she lost and had some chances there. But I, I think that, um, you know, like I said, I think, I think Layla Fernandez is, is, is used to the tour more. And I think she's going to probably – show better results, um, you know, through the end of the year if, if she continues to play. Matt, so I had not seen much of Paola Badosa before winning this event. I knew a little of her, and she was seated in the 20s. What did you know about Paola Badosa prior to this Indian Wells tournament, and is this 
a fluke result? I mean, she's in her 20s, she's been around a while, or has she just done something to her game to elevate it to a point where she now becomes a contender to win major championships? Yeah, so I knew a lot about uh, Badosa, actually, because she had a great French Open this year. She's obviously a clay court specialist coming from Spain. Uh, and these courts in Indian Wells, I mean, you you're heard it all the time from the commentators and the players that they, are so, they were so slow, the ball bounces higher. And in fact, they said they're slower than most clay courts. So that would suit Badosa as well. She, she was a really good junior. Uh, she was very promising as a junior. And they actually uh, called her... Uh, the I, I don't know if it was Mini Maria or or something like that, and obviously that's talking about Maria Sharapova. And when you see her play, when you see her serve, uh, and you see her appearance, the ponytail even or the way she wears her hair, her toss is very high. She plays very similar to Maria Sharapova, but I think that label uh, apparently was too much for her. Um, she's felt a lot of pressure throughout her career. And obviously she's worked really hard. You can see that she's fit as hell. She's really strong. Uh, I think the surface is what made a big difference, but there is some self-belief there. There's a lot of tennis knowledge. And I think that happens when you grow up on clay and you come from Spain. I think you learn how to play tennis on any surface. So no, I'm not very surprised. Obviously always surprised when somebody goes out and wins the biggest tournament of their career. But uh, she's there to stay, for sure. She's, she's going to be tough to beat, and now she's got confidence. So not a huge, um, uh, huge surprise that she, in the end, was able to win. So we've got two women's winners in a row, Johnny, that have won, as Matt says, the biggest event of their lives. Obviously, Emma Raducanu doing it at age 18. Paula Badosa has been around a while, but we still are watching a great version of Victoria Azarenka. I mean, she makes it to this final. She comes within a a third set tiebreak of winning this for the third time. And she would have been the first female player to ever do that. How impressed were you with Vika? She looked fit. She looked fierce. I mean, she looked like the Vika to which we've become accustomed all these years. Yeah. She's really playing well, um, competing well, looks like she's having fun on the court. She's really tough to beat. She makes very, very few unforced errors, and she still punishes the ball. And um, like I said, I mean, she runs everything down, makes very few errors. She's very tough for the opponents um, to get through. And, um, you know, she she won some really tight matches in Indian Wells, and I actually thought she was going to win that final against Bedos. I believe she served for the match, and Bedosa came back strong and he, you know, it was just a really, really well played match by both players. And I think Azarenka, you know, out of all the, the top names of the, of the women's who've won grand slams, I mean, she's as, she's playing as well as any of them. And I think that she's going to be a big threat to win a, a slam in 2022. It's interesting guys. So let me uh, jump in here quickly. Cause I watched the whole match. She was up five, four, 30 love, in the third set, and she made four unforced errors, wow. which is pretty amazing. And then you have to go back and say, and say, okay, why does somebody like Victoria Zarenka, who has all the experience in the world, how can she do that? How can she be herself in that game? Then she had a good comeback, and she got to the tiebreaker. But is that something that she will get back? Why does a player do that? Is that the first time that she maybe is choking a little bit um, or did she feel stressed that she had to do more than she actually did? Is she going to win a big one again? Hopefully. I agree with you, Johnny. She looks unbelievably good. She's having fun. Uh, she is competing as hard or maybe harder than anybody else, and she's tough to beat. But you have to look at the, the rest of her career. Two Grand Slams at the Australian Open, former world number one. And then what happens? 30 love, 5-4. How do you lose that? How do you make those four unforced errors? I understand it. I used to do it towards the end of my career as well. But that that difference, how does she get that back? And and guys, what do you think? Like what what should she be doing there? Should she be playing the score or should she just be playing tactics, which up to that point was not missing? My suspicion is the fact that she goes out there and she fights and she pumps her fist and she she goes to battle. And then when she's like r- literally bumped up against the finish line, Matt's suddenly she kind of 
gets a little bit of like some sort of an electric shock in her brainwave somewhere that says, oh my God, I'm about to win this thing for the third time. And I remember Craig Carden, Johnny, telling me that as Martina Navratilova got a little bit older, it got to a point where she really started to feel the nerves in certain parts of matches that would then manifest themselves in certain parts of her game. In Martina's case, she hated hitting a high forehand volley under pressure. And there were certain parts in the match that Craig would identify. And it almost seems like the same thing happened to Vika in this match. I, I think that, that a, a more urgent question that needs to be asked based on this tournament was that there were three Americans that looked like they were on pretty promising trajectories to make it to the latter part of the event. And that was Coco Goff, Danielle Collins, and Amanda Anasimova. Those three ladies looked like they had a great shot at doing really well, and they were all eliminated in, 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 in pretty quick fashion. Of those three, who do you feel like, Johnny, was the biggest disappointment? I mean, Anna Samova had a great U.S. Open, almost beat Pliskova, loses to Krejcikova. No shame in that. The French Open champion this year, she loses two and three. Goff loses to the eventual champion of this tournament, Badosa, uh, two and two. Uh, and, and then uh, you had Danielle Collins go out to Ange Jabour, one and three, who was the only seed in the top 16 to make it to the semifinals. Was there one American in particular that you felt like might do a little better than that? Well, Goff has been playing well, but, you know, we've seen the depth of this women's game the last six months to a year where anyone can win at any time. I mean, there's 30, 30 players that could win a slam, it seems like. The one that, uh, you know, you didn't mention that really played just tremendous tennis um, who ended up beating Layla Fernandez in a great match with Shelby Rogers. Right, and, I did. And, and exactly. we've got to give her a lot of credit for um, the tournament that she played because she played some fantastic tennis. She beat Ostapenko. Uh, no, actually she ended up losing to Ostapenko, but you know, getting to, to the round that she got was, uh, was tremendous into the quarterfinals with, with that big win over Fernandez. But I think you can't count these women out. You know, it's been kind of a tough end of the year. And, you know, this Indian Wells tournament definitely had some mixed results in the sense that, you know, players, this is a kind of a new period of time for this tournament. And I think a lot of players are tired and feeling different emotions coming to, towards the end of the year. So that's why I think we saw a lot of upsets. But, you know, I'm not too concerned about Anna Samova and and, and Goff. And, um, and I think that... Uh, that these players are going to are going to come back strong in in the beginning of the year for sure, and and uh, Danielle Collins too. I think she's an amazing player. I said that the twenty somethings ruled the desert. When we come back, I'll expound on that because you might not know exactly what I meant. But uh, we've got a lot more to get to. We haven't talked any men's tennis. We haven't talked about what Federer fans might be going through right now. We'll get to all of that when we come back on KickServeRadio.com part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Don't go away. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media. But why Squad Pod? Squad Pod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the chuckus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids. But also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them 
and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, AZ, Mats, and Johnny. And I said that the 20-somethings ruled the desert, and you're probably thinking, yeah, I guess all those players that did really well were in their 20s. I'm not talking age. I'm talking seedings. I mean, if you look at the women's final four, you had Onjabur, who was seeded 12th. Everybody else was seeded somewhere in the 20s, including your eventual winner, uh, who would be Paula Badosa, who we spoke about in the first segment. On the men's side in the Final Four, the highest seed in the Final Four was your eventual champion, British-born Cameron Norrie. Uh, you had Grigor Dimitrov, who was seeded 23. Uh, Nico Basilashvili, seeded 29th. And Taylor Fritz, who actually busted through, had a heck of a tournament, was the number 31 seed. And I guess it got me thinking, Mats, that when you look at the psychology of Indian Wells being played in October, you start to wonder who would be the most motivated. And as I was watching these players play and realizing that that number next to their name had them right on the borderline of whether or not they might be seated going into next season, and in particular, the Australian Open, it got me wondering if those are the players. Let's say the players ranked between, let's say, 20 and 35, 40 in the world really had the most motivation, the most to gain because of what a good result at the BNP Paribas in October might do for a kickstart to their 2022 season. How did you see it? Yeah, absolutely. These guys are so aware, obviously, uh, on the PGA Tour. If you, if you win a tournament, then you get an exemption sometimes into the, to the next few majors. I think you get a year as well. Uh, and in tennis, we don't have that. But being seated in the top 16 is absolutely huge. Uh, and I think all those guys, they know that the best players in the world, including the ones that went, uh, that they were going to be a little bit tired, maybe not as motivated, I mean, somebody like Daniil Medvedev isn't necessarily playing to win uh, the 1,000 tournaments anymore. I mean, he's playing to win tournaments, but I don't think he, he you know, if he loses, he loses. This is not a grand slam. Uh, so I think they, they know that. But at the same time, Cameron Norrie, I mean, you talked about attitude before. It's hard to have a better attitude than Norrie. He is a bull on the court. Uh, he's tough to beat. I'm surprised because he, he's not great on a really slow court, but he's, he moves well and it's tough to get through him. So I think more than anything, I think this is the kind of tournament that will really help the rest of the ATP tour because obviously with Roger and Rafa and now Novak a little bit, we don't know when they're coming back. Uh, we're a little worried that the, that the tour, the interest might take a bit of a dip, even though we all know there's great players. We have great rivalries brewing in Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Zverev and Matteo Berrettini as well. I mean, so I think it's great for the other tournaments to, to, to be able to advertise with the fact, hey, everyone on the men's side can win a big tournament just like we've been having on the, on the women's side now that Roger, Rafa, and Novak are not playing everything or some of them not playing at all. So I think it's just a, it's an injection to the tour. And I think people realize that, that we're not, it's not personalities anymore. It's high-level professional sports. And tennis players are, I think, some of the fittest athletes in the world and most competitive. So I actually, I, I welcome results like we had. Johnny, Taylor Fritz makes it to the semifinals on, and on American soil, 
you would think that an opportunity in a semifinal of a Masters 1000 against Nico Basilashvili would be an opportunity that you would hate to see an American player squander. And maybe people are going to sell this result of his a little short, but what they may not remember is the fact that he beat Matteo Berrettini, he beat Yannick Sinner, and he beat Alexander Zverev along the way. I mean, ultimately, to me, this sounds like the best professional effort, the best professional result that Taylor Fritz has ever had. Yeah, those are those are great wins. And I think a lot of people have been expecting those kind of results from Taylor Fritz. Um, you know, he got to 24 in the world and then he faltered for a while. And uh, we've been waiting to see better results from Taylor, more consistency. And we finally saw it. But I think it gets now overshadowed by his loss to Bas because that's a match that, um, you know, you get through those three big wins and and that is a very, very winnable match. I mean, Basileshvili is a tremendously great player off the ground, off both sides. He's got huge weapons. However, um, you know, he's not a big guy and, you know, he's not going to just blow you off the court. And Taylor Fritz plays great, great defensive tennis with offense on his forehand and his, a huge serve. And on paper, especially after those three wins, you would have expected him to uh, be in the finals of Indian Wells. And boy, would that have been a boom for American tennis. Uh, I think he would have seen a lot lot better ratings on the tennis channel on that final Sunday. And I think it's a shame that he didn't get to the final. And had he gotten to the final, there's no no guarantee he would have beaten Nori, but but it was definitely a, a winnable match. So it's a little disappointing, Andy, to, to be honest with you, even after those three great wins. And although he's not American, Matt, for whatever reason, Grigor Dimitrov just seems like a guy who is, has found his way into the hearts of tennis fans around the world. He's a good-looking kid. He plays a beautiful brand of tennis. He seems very likable. He seems almost like a modern-day Guga Quirton to me in the way he presents himself on the court. He had a nice, he had a nice result himself. I mean, uh, uh, took out Medvedev, took out Hubert Hercotch. So, I mean, he had a great opportunity as well to sort of springboard himself back into that level that we thought we might see from him when he made it to uh, the semifinals of the Australian Open and narrowly lost to Rafael Nadal. Then he goes out almost without a whimper to Cameron Norrie uh, in the semifinals, 6-2, 6-4. Ultimately, a disappointing result for Dimitrov, or would Dimitrov fans have reason for optimism going into next year? I think that, um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of of Grigor. He's such a great guy. Uh, He works really hard. Uh, I love the way that he plays. I think that he obviously was overshadowed by his nickname, Baby Fed, uh, for such a long time. And I think somehow he felt the pressure there. But at the same time, Grigor Dimitrov isn't any better than that. He's had moments where he's playing unbelievable tennis, but still the consistency is, is not there. And when I, when I mean consistency, it's really difficult when you watch Grigor Dimitrov, and I think he has problems too. What is he actually trying to accomplish? Because he moves so well. He defends so well. But you can't win big tournaments by only defending. Uh, and then he doesn't serve well enough consistently. So I feel like I'm watching somebody who's not really sure, not, not only not sure of what they can do that day, but also not sure, how am I going to win this match? How am I going to play this match? Uh, what, what are going to be some of the ways I'm going to win these points? And I think that, that the consistency of the players on tour today, uh, I think this is an unbelievably good result from Grigor Dimitrov because uh, his style of tennis is, I mean, I hope he's not listening, but it's becoming a little bit old-fashioned, to be honest. And if you play that open uh, and you have a sliced backhand, you better have a big serve, a huge serve. And he doesn't. He moves great. Great attitude, but I think he's just missing uh, that. His forehand was working, but uh, I think for Dimitrov fans, there's a reason to be happy. He made the semis, and he's going to be seeded in the Australian Open, and he can make a quarters at any time in a Grand Slam tournament. Can he go further? I really hope so, because, uh, again, I, I love, I love Grieber's uh, um, professionalism, and I love the way he plays. A guy who I really loved the way he played, particularly in that final, Johnny, is Cameron Norrie. Let's go ahead and give this guy his due because he really took on a game plan that seemed brilliant after the first set against Basilashvili. I started to realize 
that he backed way up off of the baseline and he was he was real happy to do what I saw you do a lot of when you were at your best which was just counterpunch both of you guys for that matter stay a little bit back let these guys slug and let them maybe make some errors and and take them out of their game a little bit I saw some things from Cameron Norrie at times it reminded me of John McEnroe with regard to to hands at the net I saw some some needle threading passing shots up the line on the run with his backhand that reminded me of Rafael Nadal. Uh, I saw some playing off of the ropes that actually reminded me of Muhammad Ali fighting George Foreman. I just saw this guy taking different pages from different champions and implementing that into his game. And it was just so refreshing to see a guy win a title that wasn't just a serve plus one player. Yeah, I mean, Cam Norrie is a guy that he he just doesn't have a game that you would look at and say, you know, this is a top 15 guy. No. Because he's just a workhorse. And today in the, the, the latest rankings, he's now 16 in the world. So, I mean, he's got a chance. Obviously, he could approach the top 10. He, he, he might look like, you know, the farthest thing from a top 10 player. In my book, he does because he doesn't really have – huge weapons. And in today's game, you know, most top guys all have big weapons. And I think that Cam Norrie's weapon is his mental toughness. Um, The guy never beats himself. And even in the final against Vasilashvili, I mean, he he was down a set. I think he was down a break too, uh, if I'm not mistaken, early. He was. And so, I mean, everything was going against him, but you know what? He just hung around and that's what, what he does. Um, you know, he got to the finals of San Diego. He lost, he got destroyed by Rude, 0-2. Um, he might have been tired. You know, Rude played a, a great match. And then he comes back and, and, he, and he barrels through this draw. I mean, after getting drummed in the finals of San Diego. But here he is in the finals and he, you know, everything is going against him. And somehow he found a way to win. And that's really what champions do. And he did it at a, in a huge stage um, to win a 1,000 uh, master's title like that coming out of basically nowhere. I mean, the guy wasn't even really in the top 20 and he's had a tremendous year, great results. Um, you know, he doesn't, he has his solid wings off both sides. Doesn't really come up much, but he will throw in a, a big serve here and there. Uh, again, I, I'm a little baffled. I'd like to get Max's take on his game because I just don't see it, but, but yet he just gets results, results after results. So can he, can he hang in there? Can he stay in the top 20 mats? Yeah, well, I think he can because, I mean, when I watched him, when I watch him play, I think of Leighton Hewitt. And Leighton Hewitt came up in, a, in an era where that was just before Roger Federer, but he didn't have any weapons. There was Marat Safin, there was Andy Roddick, there was David Narbandian, who's an unbelievable ball striker. And of course, then Roger came around. But Leighton Hewitt, through, through great feet and a great mind, turned the total package of Leighton Hewitt into a weapon. And I think that's what Cam Norrie is doing. That being lefty helps if you know how to deal with it. And I think uh, Cam Norrie does know how to deal with it. He's got a, a backhand that's very uh, unorthodox, very flat, very much like a Jimmy Connors. So it's tough to play against. And then he's got the other side, the forehand, which has an enormous amount of topspin. So uh, it, it, it's it's tough. To, which side do you play him? And then he said once uh, before he played Rafa Nadal, I think it was the French Open, that he is not going to get tired. I'm going to put myself up against anyone in the gym. He made that publicly known. And I actually feel like that's exactly what he believes. So I think he's uh, he can stay up in, in the fifth top 15. I actually think he has a chance to get to the top 10 and I would not be surprised. And some of it is because there's a little bit of lack of consistency among some of the players that are breaking into the top 10 uh, at the moment. Of course, you have the, the, the best players, Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Zverev. That's not going to change. But the next sort of five or six, I don't see a, a lot of guys up there that are going to stay there for sure. Unless you are very young, like a Yannick Sinner. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about these rankings because they are definitely going to have an effect on the psyche of fans of Roger Federer. But all I will tell you is this, Johnny Levine, on our way out, which is that as you mentioned, Cam Norrie's biggest strength being his mental toughness, a big smile went across Mats Vlander's face because that's what they used to say about him. 
His biggest weapon was his brain and his mental toughness. So as you're talking about Cam Norrie, uh, I'm thinking Matt's Vlander, and he's thinking Leighton Hewitt, but no, no, no. It, it was all about Matt's. All right, when we come back, the rankings, and where are they now? Now that we're at the end of October, we still have O2 Arena to come, so things could change, but where are they as of today? That and more when we come back on KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network, final segment, Matt's Johnny and AZ. And I teased in the beginning of the show, the fans of Federer are a little freaked right now. They are a little bit uh, distraught because they have got to come to grips with the fact that for just about the second time in the last two decades, guys, Roger Federer is not in the top 10 in the world. And I don't really think of this as news. I'm almost saying it sarcastically, Matt, because it's like, how could he still be in the top 10 in the world? How much of a protective ranking can you have? And nothing against Roger, but we saw what happened at Wimbledon, and he said himself he was nowhere close to his best. He's had all kinds of issues with his knees. He's talking about not being ready to go anywhere close to the Australian Open. I mean, is this something that people should be surprised by at all, that Roger Federer is now 11 in the world? Well, certainly not that he's uh, outside of the top 10 because obviously uh, you need to play matches, you need to win matches. But um, yeah, it's disappointing for sure. I mean, to me, the next two months is going to be, um, and now that you tell me that Roger is unlikely to play the Australian, but, but the next two months for me, I was just going to sort of hang around and wait for news, news about Rafa, news about Roger, uh, news about Novak as well. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Novak, but can he come back to have the same intensity as before? Because we do have these great young players coming up. And wouldn't it be just fantastic to see one more time the big three all show up, Andy Murray is back as well, and then have them tackle the likes of Yannick Sinner uh, and Denis Shapovalov and, of course, the Tsitsipas and Medvedev and the Zveras. But uh, it would be just amazing. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz against Rafael Nadal before that's over. That would be fun. So I really hope and I pray and uh, I just wish we get to see them one more time. But my hopes are not that high when it comes to Roger Federer. And the only reason is because he's 41 years old. 
That's crazy. How can he come back at 41 years old? He talks about Andy Murray, Johnny, and Andy Murray had a nice win over Carlos Alcaraz in the desert. I was a little bit surprised by that. Is that reason more for optimism on Andy Murray's part or delusionment a little bit with regard to Alcaraz after what we saw at the U.S. Open? Does that, does that unfortunately, to some extent, bring him back to earth a little bit? Well, I think uh, Andy Murray, uh, you got to give the guy credit for fighting and playing and, and, and not worrying about, you know, basically being a hundredth ranked player right now because it's what he loves to do. And he feels like he's healthy enough to do it. And the competitor that he is, is, has shown through and he's played some great matches. Um, can he sustain, you know, health wise, you know, it looks like he's doing pretty good, but I think that his game takes a lot out of him. And I think players today are, are hungrier and they're fitter and, and they're going to continue to get better. And so I think he's going to have his struggles. I mean, he's, his best tennis, I think, is behind him. But it's, it's kind of cool to see the guy out there fighting just as hard as ever and, and showing the heart that we've seen. Um, but I just, don't, I just don't see him pulling together, you know, a, a string of, of, of matches in a row where he's going to be any real factor in a slam. It's fun to see him, and I think that fans like seeing a former number one and a guy like Andy Moore, but I, I just don't see it long-term. Yeah, guys remember when he played the French Open uh, and he lost to Stan Wawrinka last year, and uh, he took a wild card and he shouldn't have taken it, I thought, and it became sort of public news. Well, Andy Murray to me is, he, he's back. He loves to hate losing, and that's kind of, it's kind of that's it for him and in San Diego he was playing matches and he literally was back to I hate to lose to anyone and I hate to be wrong I hate to play bad uh, and I'm going to talk to my players boss because you didn't prepare me enough so I love to see him back fighting and I'm with you Johnny I think his tennis is behind him his best tennis uh, but I think that his problem solving skills uh, are going to always follow him around if he hates losing. And I think against this younger generation, I think he finds it easier to get inspired playing against the likes of Carlos Alcaraz because so what if he loses to a 17-year-old? But I'm going to show you a thing or two. So I love having Andy Murray. And in five sets, the Australian Open, you do not want to play Andy Murray. I don't care who you are. Well, I was just very relieved to see him play at Indian Wells without that neckbeard because he finally solved that problem and got rid of that thing, which I've had a real tough time with over the course of the last several <laughs> tournaments that I've watched. All because right. So jealous. that's because you're jealous. <laughs> even a little bit like God, a guy looked like Kyle Orton, who used to be a, a quarterback for the Broncos and they had to cut him because of his neck beard. Can't disagree with that one. Thank you. I mean, yes. goodness gracious. You're a married man who needs to, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, when you think about how just dapper and, and, and how good Jamie Murray always looks on the court, and then Andy Murray with this neck beard, I don't get it. Anyway, all right, so so you've got Djokovic at number one. Let's get back to these rankings. Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev. Johnny, Mats makes the comment that those guys are there to stay for a while. Then you get into the Rublev, Berrettini. I don't know what Dominic Team is still doing at eight if Roger Federer is out of the top ten. Kasper Ruud now at nine. So, again – we look back and what do these guys have in common? Well, several of them were in the desert in 2019 and kind of good jump on, on their pro career back at the Arizona Tennis Classic. Hubert Hercoc at number 10, then Federer, as we mentioned, at 11. FAA, Felix Auger-Aliassimi at 12. Sinner at 13. Schwartzman at 14. And you said Nori, 16. I've got him here tied at 15 with Shapovalov. Now, of those guys, who would you be looking for and looking toward to sort of maybe show up in maybe the position that Berrettini was in by breaking through and making a major final like he did at Wimbledon. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to pick any one of those guys. I'd like to see, you know, Medvedev and Tsitsipas and Zverev show some consistency. And I think that's going to be the key for those guys to show really that they are the next generation that's here to stay. And by what I mean by that is, you know, semis and finals of slams, no less than a quarter and not getting upset and beating all the players they're supposed to be. You know, Zverev, I know he's tired. I know he had a long, long season. So I'm going to cut some slack. But 
you just can't lose in a, in a tight match there to Fritz. I mean, he had two match points. So, you know, these are the kind of matches that these, these guys, if they want to be the next grand slam champions, they can't lose those matches as far as who's going to be that next guy, you know, look, it could be a guy like center. We just don't know. I mean, it's kind of a crapshoot. I think what's, what these guys are chasing now for the end of the year is the, is trying to get to the, to the world tour finals. And those rankings are a tad different than the ATP rankings. And, you know, now Nori is number 10 on that list. I mean, another couple good tournaments, he might sneak into the top eight. I know Nadal's eight right now, but he's not going to play. So that opens up a spot. I think, I think that's really the next big thing for these guys is can they make that top eight? Can they get into Italy, the world tour finals? I think that's what we have to look forward to for the rest of the year. Now, I misspoke earlier when I said O2 Arena, but yeah, it is in Italy now. They've moved that tour championship. Matt, I've got my eye on two guys here, and they're very, very different, although they're, they're great buddies. They grew up together. They take a very different approach to their game. They're both easy to root for, but again, a very different presentation on the court, and that's Felix Auger-Aliassimi and Denis Shapovalov. And Auger-Aliassimi, to me, seems like a little bit of the more mature player on the court. He seems like he's doing everything he possibly can to do the right things, to put himself in position to make a run like he did at the U.S. Open. But Shapovalov just seems like he's got more game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Denis Shapovalov is a more dangerous player at this particular moment. I think that uh, Auger Asim, when he finds his confidence and when he gets things right, I mean, I, I know that somebody said that, you know, he lost eight finals uh, in a row uh, where you rather get to the finals than lose earlier. So how bad is 0-8? Well, it's shocking. It's absolutely horrible. If you now are going to believe that this guy, Felix, is going to be a multiple Grand Slam champion and you lose, and he didn't even win a set in most of those or in any of those. So I think that he's shown, not me or you, he's shown the locker room that he's not good or great when things really mean something to him. Uh, and I think that's what he figured out. Obviously, the U- U.S. Open result was was incredible, but I think that's going to follow him around. It's going to follow him around, especially in the locker room. So I think he's had he has a much uh, bigger hurdle to get over than Denis Shapovalov. I don't think we're players. We expect him to be a great player. He might win a slam, but he's not going to be that Mr. Consistency. With Felix, you feel like, yeah, he most probably will win a slam, but I also feel like, Hold on. He could be our next Novak Djokovic. The way he moves, the way he has no weaknesses anywhere. Uh, and the way, like you said, he's so serious. But he is missing that one important thing, which is winning and playing your best tennis when it means the most. And he so far, ooh, not sure he's shown that in too many matches in his career. I'm sure he will. I love the guy. He's a nice guy. And, and I uh, hope, hope to see him win slams in the future. But there is some certain amount of pressure on him. I'd like to jump in here, Andy, and just counter one thing on what Matt said, if you don't mind, on, on Felix. Felix was, is 0-8 in the finals, right, Matt? Yeah. The thing about Felix is his first couple years of playing slams, I don't know that he even got past the second round. I mean, he's kind of been a late bloomer as far as big results. And so the the 0-8 is not a great result. But if he just can crack one of those, I think think Felix has the game. He's an emotional guy, but I, I really believe he does have the game to be that guy that could really break through and win slams. Um, I love Shapovalov's game. He got to the semis of Wimbledon, but he didn't do much after he's got that huge serve. He's just a little more erratic, but when Felix is feeling the ball and seeing the ball and, and playing his game, it's a thing of beauty. And I, and I really believe that, uh, that he could be that next guy that Andy's talking about that could break through out of nowhere and win one of these things. I'll tell you what's a thing of beauty. I wish people could see our show sometimes when they're just listening to it. Because when Matt Svelander said, he's 0-8 and, and 5, that's, that's horrible. And Johnny made a had a look on his face. Like he rolled his eyes like, oh, okay. Easy for the guy that won the French at 17 to say, when you're out there, Johnny, 
trying to play, <laughs> trying to play like challengers and futures, yep. and you know, clawing and scratching. And this guy's like zero and eight in like ATP events, and he's gotten to eight finals. It just, I wish people could have seen the look on your face when Matt said that. And I was kind of thinking the same thing, like, oh, okay, well, I guess we can all can't win the French at seventeen in our first try. So well, I, you, you got to <laughs> let, let me count it here. I mean, I'm very impressed with with oh, uh, know. with his best tennis. I just think that some people, and maybe you guys are uh, included in that group of people, you have to realize what the locker room is thinking. Right. And the locker room is, is not the guy who's ranked 20 in the world or 30 in the world or 50 in the world. The locker room is the guys that are ranked one through five, and they will never, ever give Felix anything for free. And that's the problem when you go, well, for him. Everybody goes in thinking that, hey, he might not play his best match. He might choke a little bit. Just like when Marat Safran was playing, everybody went into the match. I'm just going to hang around because Marat just l- might lose his mind and break a bunch of rackets and I might win the match. And that's... That's the problem is you have to fight for every single match if your name's Felix Algeliasim. And that takes a lot out of you compared to Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal where the intimidation factor wins them 50% of the matches. Felix's intimidation factor in the locker room, I'm telling you, is pretty close to nil. Well, and, and Johnny, what was really funny along those lines of exactly what Matt is talking about was but I when, love him. Don't get I know me you wrong. do. <laughs> right, Felix, fine. if you're listening, yeah. I love the guy. He's a great player, but you have to look at both sides. <laughs> you have to look at every every angle here, guys. You make a good point, and you always get the last word on those kinds of things because certainly you've been to places that, that I, I can't even dream of and that Johnny, I'm sure, would love to have been as well. But when I was watching Fabio Fonini play Tsitsipas and Fonini was up a set and a break, I, I, I looked over at Sarah Zoden and I said, this is 50-50 at best. And the next thing you know, Tsitsipas rips off, I think, five straight games, wins the second set 6-2. And you could just hear it in Anacone's voice. Paul's just going, well, here he goes again. You know, he starts spraying balls. He's half asleep out there. It's just a matter of time when this guy's going to, you know, just decide to, to go walk about kind of a thing. And, and, and Paul was just waiting for it. He knew it. He was teasing it. And it happened and uh, and and off went Tsitsipas and Fanini just kind of he just kind of has that look on his face like what do you want from me this is who I am um, and so I, I'm sure that when they see him in the locker room you have to fear him a little bit because when the guy gets going and he just starts swinging for the fences he can hurt you and 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 probably nobody knows that any any more so than Rafael Nadal. So I'm going to jump in here. Fabio Fognini is an absolute genius on the court in terms of feel, in terms of foot speed. Uh, and so is Nick Curios. He's a genius. And so is Benoit Paire at times. But what these guys don't do, they don't ever get practice in playing matches when they are tight. Okay, you're not going to play your best when you're nervous or when you are. You have to win this match. These guys never get practice doing that. Rafa Nadal is so tight at times in the beginning of matches and was probably towards the end of matches, but he does it all the time. So he knows how to deal with it. Somebody like Fabio Fognini suddenly is ahead, a set, up a break. Well, this is a situation where, oh, I really want to win this match. Yeah, but if you don't ever practice playing matches when the intensity is high all the time, we can't really expect these guys uh, that don't always show up at 100% emotionally in matches. We can't expect them to pull close matches out because they never practice it. And Fabio Fognini is such a cool player to watch, but it's not a surprise at all. Paul Anacon was so spot on. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, before we go, Johnny, you're still up in the air with the Arizona Tennis Classic. I will tell our listeners, and if you want to clarify anything, that there is a Decent possibility that that tournament may come back and it has spawned forth so many great players that have had such great careers in the last two years. Mats Vlander on our last show said that if you have it, he will come. And uh, what do you want to tell our listeners about that, if anything, before we check out this week? Well, I don't know what I told you the last time, but we're, we're close. We'd like to see it happen. Uh, we've made some 
tentative preparations for it to happen. We don't have the final final word. Um, I would say that the next show, um, we can give you a commitment one way or the other, but we certainly are are excited about the prospect of having it since Matt Lander has committed to coming to Phoenix to be a part of it. Um, and obviously the, the one and only Andy Zoden, um, take it away. I will has com- committed to it as well. So <laughs> I'll say that on court. So, so, I will so, say that on court. so that, and in fact, Johnny, we will have a live show, a live kickserveradio.com with the big three. Well, or in our case, maybe no, the not very big three. The big one. The, three the big us. one. The big one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it. Matt, you down with that? Are you, we good? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I mean, I, I run it. I, can I just throw out a little bit of credit to San Diego? How great was that? Yeah, it was. And I watched it on the Tennis Channel. Small venue, but the players were really pumped. The crowd was fantastic. And Johnny, when I hear you uh, and, and Andy talk about your tournament, I mean, that's what I'm imagining. Yeah. And I think San Diego did a great job in also putting on an event that American young players has a chance to get some ATP points, get some crowd support. Because once they get to Indian Wells... It's kind of like the tournament's too big. The pressure is too much. Taylor Fritz had a great tournament, but nobody else. But in San Diego, I think that's where the American players can find some form and some confidence. So American tennis in the USTA need to put on more of these tournaments. Uh, and I think that was a huge success. Chicago has run a bunch of women's events. So you got to say that the uh, American uh, uh, promoters out there, they really are doing a great job in trying to uh, – to help the tour out. So, uh, Johnny, pressure is on. <laughs> All right. Well, in the meantime, Matt's Vlander, you and I are off to an event in Missoula, Montana, a pro-am that includes the likes of yourself, the Jensen brothers, Robert Kendrick, Jesse Witten, Brenda Schultz-McCarthy, and somehow myself. And as they used to say on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And I think we know who that is. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. For Matt V. Lander, Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden. Catch you guys soon and have a great fall. And we'll have a lot to talk about with regard to what's going to be happening in Italy in the Tour Championships. See you then. <laughs>